They tried to make me go to rehab. I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no, no, no. Welcome to the United Nations of Horror. I'm Becky Booth from the UK, and today I'm joined by Matt in London, UK. Lucar Dragomir in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Anthony Rotolo. I'm in Florida today. You're always all over the place. <laughs> I, I'm traveling for business. I'm actually at Walt Disney World. How cool is that? That's very nice. cool. Nice. <laughs> it's the way to do it. If you got to travel, you got to go to Disney World. I know. And today we're talking about Resolution, which is a 2012 American thriller horror that's directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, and it's also written by Benson. But just very quickly to say that we tried to record this episode last week, and it was disastrous, wasn't it? Yeah, we had some Skype issues. (laughs) Skype (laughs) issues, illness issues. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Everything was against us. But we appreciate everybody's understanding of our technical issues. Yes, yes do indeed so just getting straight into things if we talk about what everybody's been watching or reading this week uh matt you have been watching parasite yeah i have i have and i've uh, i've nearly finished it it's uh, it's quite a long series as uh, a lot of uh, anime uh, are um but i think oh, this, yes. yeah this one is uh gosh where am i now like mid mid 20s in the episodes um and i think i'm finally on the last one so um yeah, I've, I've really been enjoying it. Um, it's, uh, I don't know if, if people haven't heard about it. It's about um, a, teen- a teenager from Tokyo, Shinichi Izumi. And it's about these kind of um, worm-like creatures that um, are parasites. And they take over their human hosts uh, by basically eating the brains and taking over the head. And then they kind of are able to reshape the host's head at will. Um, and uh, the main character, Shinichi, Shinichi gosh, that's a tongue twister. Um, <laughs> Shinichi, he, uh, one of these parasites lands in his bed while he's sleeping and it tries to take over his body. But because he's wearing headphones or earphones in bed uh, while he's asleep, it, it can't get into his ear. And so instead it, it burrows into his arm and, and takes over his arm. Um, so you've got this really cool kind of thing going on where um, you've, uh, Shinichi is, uh, you know, his, his head is intact and uh, uh, the parasite didn't take over his brain. Uh, so his arm has got this parasite. And it's just kind of cool when these two separate intellects and personalities uh, uh, interacting. I really enjoyed it. You know, the parasite being in the, the hand reminds me a little bit of the anime Vampire Hunter D. Have you ever seen that yes, one? Yes, I have. And in fact, that that's yeah i hadn't even thought of it until you mentioned it then but he does have a uh, like a, is it like an eye in his hand or something or something that talks yeah to him? like a, a mouth i think in two eyes maybe yeah yeah now you mentioned that yeah yeah i remember that i think i think yeah. somebody posted about this on facebook i saw images of it recently ah, okay yeah i believe this was based on a um a manga from the late 80s um and there's also a live action film which is um i think i think that's all so been been made as well um so you know it's, it's a popular series um and i would definitely recommend it it's got some horror elements about it which is good um some fairly grotesque body horror the way that the parasites are able to kind of reshape the the host's bodies it's it's it actually reminded me quite a lot of the thing at times because you've got all these kind of weird tentacles coming out of people and big gaping maws with teeth in them that kind of thing nice um, anyway that's enough about parasite <laughs> oh, sounds good <laughs> It's definitely one I want to check out. Yeah. It's it's on my list uh, near the top. Yeah, I've too. I've enjoyed it as much as uh, Attack on Titan, if not more, actually. Um, That's really high praise. Yeah, I, and I did really enjoy Attack on Titan. Um, I think this one was just. 
invest in the characters a bit more in this one, um, less so in Attack on Titan. Are there a lot of anime tropes? I, I have to ask, just because, you know, anime <laughs> always has certain crazy tropes, like, um, as I've mentioned with Seven Deadly Sins, you know, the the uh, a lot of the characters tend to be kind of, like, perverse in anime sometimes, you know. <laughs> does it have a lot of that going, or is it more, like, straightforward horror or character development, um, I guess I should say? I suppose the stand, there's a lot of the standard kind of... Um, there's a lot of very emotional, angsty stuff. Lots of people, ah, yes. they spend a lot of time thinking to themselves quite intensely about things and getting very excited or upset about stuff. Um, uh, I suppose that would be one of my main criticisms would be sometimes the, the relationships between the people in, in the show can be a little bit overwrought. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's part of it, I think, that you come to expect it. So, Yeah. Yeah, certain things in anime, and it's just, it's a cultural difference, no doubt, which, you know, that's some of yeah. what makes it interesting, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, Lucad, you've been watching Full Metal Alchemist? Yeah, it's it's Anime Club here already. Yeah. Anime, you know, Nations <laughs> Horror. <laughs> uh, this has some horror elements in it as well. You've got two brothers, Ed and Al Elric, and uh, their father is an alchemist. He just kind of goes off and leaves the family. And uh, I should mention that they're from sort of like a small village that I believe is supposed to be based in Germany. I'm not sure, but it's like the early 1900s. So kind of a cool time period. The The father goes away and then plague comes through their village and kills their mother. So they learn all this alchemy in order to bring their mother back, which is, you know, like the ultimate taboo in alchemy. Unfortunately, when they bring her back, not all goes well. They're sort of like transported in this other dimension where the main brother loses his arm and his leg and the brother's body is just completely lost. But he manages to save his little brother by transmuting his soul onto um, some armor that the family has. So as you can imagine, you know, pretty rough, but they have this... um, sort of this uh, armor they put on the brother who's lost his arm and leg, and that's why he is eventually called the Full Metal Alchemist. Uh, He joins the army in an attempt, I guess you would say, to get his brother's body back, to to learn more alchemy, essentially. Uh, And from there, they they go on this kind of major adventure, which I thought was only 13 episodes when I started watching, but then I realized... uh, all right, there's like multiple series on here, so it's like you know four, I guess technically seasons. So I'm gonna try to finish this before it goes off of Netflix, which I believe is uh, on the 20th of this month. So how far, we'll how far through are you? Uh, I am middle of season mm-hmm. two, so we'll see if oh, I can wow. make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's really good. The animation is terrific, and yeah. Um, I like the main character a lot. He's uh, he's a short guy, kind of like myself, and uh, so they're always making short jokes about him. And you know, it's just <laughs> it's silly. He gets really bent out of shape and goes into that crazy anime kind of chibi mode. And <laughs> but uh, like there's do. a lot of oh yes, yes, I do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really it's a good show as far as horror elements. There's a lot of that. It's definitely not a a typical children's show. That sounds pretty neat. Yeah, I would definitely I would recommend this, but. You know, be aware that it is pretty long. Yeah. 
the whole um, thing of uh, bestowing somebody's soul into an object is is that a kind of isn't that a sort of bit of a typical trope as well? I'm just thinking like you've got video games like Soul Calibur, you've got something in the in the in the big sword and um, even to a certain extent parasites as well. I mean, it's not a soul, but it's a kind of a uh, another being in, in another part of someone's body. You mentioned um, Vampire Hunter D with the uh, whatever that thing is in his hand. It seems like a common yeah. common kind of theme, doesn't it? It really does. You know, I had never really thought of that as a trope, but that is in a lot of uh, anime and, as you mentioned, Japanese video games. So it's it's an interesting idea. I mean, even in the, the anime Bleach, you know, their, their swords have an individual soul, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And eventually, we're gonna probably cover some specific anime titles on here on UNH. Like I, cool. I definitely want to get Helsing in at some point, and um, I think we could get away with Spirited Away because there's a lot of horror in that, and that's yes. a, a Miyazaki film that is just uh, amazing. Yeah. I'd so. love to do that one. Well, Prince, Prince yeah, that's Mononoke as well. That's that's got some pretty horrific bits in it, hasn't it? It really it? does. Yeah. yeah, you seen that one? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I think I've seen just about every Miyazaki film. I believe Full Metal Alchemist is on UK Netflix at the moment. I don't know how long it's going to be there, but uh, I did check the other day. For our UK list who uh, aren't using a, any other means to get to access to the US site, it's on the UK one. So. And um, Anthony, you have been watching The Brotherhood of the Bell? Yeah, you know, I remembered another one that I watched. Um, I'll, I'll work my way toward Brotherhood of the Bell. Last night... Uh, I was traveling, so I was trying to figure out what to watch, and I, it occurred to me I've got all these films on my Ultraviolet account. So I had uh, I did a revisit of Pacific Rim, and I had watched that before, and I, I enjoyed it, but I enjoyed it a lot more the second time around. Uh, has everyone seen Pacific Rim? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Love that yeah. film. Yeah, yeah I yeah, enjoyed it too. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I love Guillermo del Toro, but I don't love every film he does. Sometimes he's a little hit or miss. I have not seen Crimson Peak, but I've really enjoyed Pacific Rim. I, I thought, you know, he really got that one right. It's just good smash em up fun. And, uh, you know, there's some moments, even with all the big CGI and how massive everything feels, there's a couple of brief moments where you almost are reminded of just, you know, those guys in suits movies, you know, like, uh, yeah. you know, like a scene out of Mecha Godzilla or something like that. It's really, really oh, yeah. good. So <laughs> I had a lot of fun Ultra with that. Man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so I recommend that for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. Uh, what else have I been watching? I watched, uh, as a kind of a palate cleanser, I revisited the National Lampoon Vacation films uh, specifically the Vegas and European vacation films, because I, I don't remember if I've ever seen them in their entirety. I've seen the first one like a zillion times to the point where I have it memorized, but uh, not those two. And it was just kind of fun. So uh, not horror, but, you know, sometimes you got to take a break and do something different. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Now, if, if anyone's familiar with some of the stuff I do with uh, TV, I have a, a Facebook group now called TV Terror, and I've been putting my posts there and then sharing them to some of our favorite groups. Um, but I've been—it's been a place where I can put my posts on, you know, the write-ups I've done about various telefilms, 
and a lot of folks have been sharing great stuff there. So look us up there if you're into uh, all of that, um, you know, all the vintage films and and new and old, actually. Um, but someone posted recently about a film called The Brotherhood of the Bell, and I had not heard of this one. It turns out it's a film with Glenn Ford. Do you guys, now you guys are all a little younger than me. Do you know who Glenn Ford is? Yeah, he was in a lot of Westerns, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, and well, you may know him best from um, Superman the movie. He was Clark Kent's father. Ah, okay. I did not know that. Yeah, uh, he was terrific in, in Superman the movie. But anyway, this this movie was made about eight years before Superman, 1970. And it's about this like secret society, a fraternal order called the Brotherhood of the Bell, where uh, it's sort of like a Yale Skull and Bones Club type of thing where these guys get sworn in and exchange for their secrecy. The Brotherhood takes care of them and, you know, the, and they become a part of uh, there's a line in the movie where um, this new inductee says, I, I you know, I'm amazed I'm a part of the establishment now. And the, his his elder brother says, no, you are the establishment. Uh, but the idea is like all doors will open for you as long as you're loyal and obedient and you do their bidding. So uh, Glenn Ford uh, comes a day for Glenn Ford when he's asked to do something that is just, you know, kind of a bridge too far in terms of his loyalty. And, and uh, a friend of him dies as a result. So he he decides to out the brotherhood, even like going to uh, the press with it. So it turns into like a thriller where um, there are consequences for him doing that and his life is being destroyed. Very good film. So I'll be writing that up soon. And uh, it is on YouTube. So I recommend checking it out if if it sounds like something you're into. That sounds really interesting. What was it called again? Sorry. The Brotherhood of the Bell. The Brotherhood of the Bell. I love your Facebook group, Anthony. It's just some real gems that you can find on there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been trying to build it up, too. I've been uh, finding lots of stuff. and um... It's just things that we wouldn't normally come across or, or find. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Pointed me in the direction of uh, lots of films and television shows that I, I would not have otherwise known about. So it's, uh, it's really awesome stuff. And definitely looking forward to the, uh, the book when it does come out as well. Yeah, me too. Yes. I'm getting close. Uh, I'm excited. I have, uh, it's taking shape. I have a great introduction written for it. Um, so we'll get there. Hopefully we'll be announcing that soon. And uh, Matt, you um, also read Providence, which I'm very excited to hear about. <laughs> oh, man, where do I start with Providence? <laughs> <laughs> it's probably worth saying that um, I, I feel quite stupid when I'm reading this because I'm pretty sure that there's an awful lot going on there that is just going right over my head. When you start to look into it a bit online um, and you discover all of the things that people have written about uh, about Providence, and uh, uh, it, it's quite clear that... Um, the Alan Moore, the, the the author, is is quite a clever chap. I think there's a there's an awful lot of um, sort of imagery and uh, references going on in there, which um, to a casual reader are probably you're probably going to miss them. That said, I I have really been enjoying it, not just for the story, um, the illustration uh, by Jason Burroughs is also fantastic. It's a really special series, I think. Um, is it so? Is it like a love? 
Does it have like a Lovecraftian it, feel? It, to it does. Yeah. So it's kind of, um, and these are not my words. Um, somebody described it as being a, a kind of prequel and sequel to Moore's previous story, Neonomicon, which also drew upon a kind of H.P. Lovecraft, Cthulhu Mythos sort of storyline. Neonomicon was sort of more Vinsmith stuff. I think this kind of hints at that as well, but it's also a lot of other things going on as well. But I'm, I'm not an expert on H.P. Lovecraft, so I think it's kind of hard for me to know exactly what what he's winking and nodding at a lot of the time um, but it's just just you know even even on a surface read it's really really interesting it's um it's set in the early 1900s so you're in this kind of uh, period of, of, of sort of racial and sexual intolerance and uh, i think more kind of his way of kind of uh, voicing his disapproval of that is to actually uh, the, the main character he's created, a guy called Robert Black, is actually not only is he gay, but he's also Jewish. So he's kind of he's basically sticking his finger up at, at the uh, uh, the intolerances of that time right from the start. Um, and this guy, this guy, uh, Robert Black, he's a he's an author uh, or a, a journalist. Um, but he decides to, to take a leave of absence and, and to um, write a book about the legends surrounding this novel called uh, Sous le Monde. I'm not sure if that's in some of H.P. Lovecraft's works. It might be. Um, I have a feeling that it, it probably means more than I than I know about. But basically, people who read this book are said that it's said to drive them mad. Um, so as he kind of starts to investigate the legends surrounding this book and, and, and meeting people connected with it, more and more strange things happen to him as he kind of delves deeper. There's this underlying undercurrent of dread the whole time. Um, and it just becomes more and more bizarre and more and more strange things happen. It kind of unfolds fairly slowly, but it's it's never boring. Um, and the, the level of historical detail is quite astonishing. Um, like I said, not just in the writing, but just in the in the illustrations themselves. So um, I would highly recommend this to anybody who's interested in, um, well, either graphic novels or anything more or anything about H.P. Lovecraft. Um, you should check it out. The only um, proviso I would put on that is that um there's quite a lot of male appendages and female body parts um so if that bothers you then um you probably don't want to read it or at least don't read it on a train on a commute like i did the other day and got to a rather interesting page i then had to close it and uh, carry on reading something <laughs> else <laughs> done that before our friend chris downs has posted about that one a lot and i've seen uh yes excerpts from from those books it's fascinating what people are able to read into it um, it's really interesting so yeah i would recommend people read this but then also check some stuff out some check out some of the resources online people who've written about this um i might post a few on the on the facebook group if um, people are interested because i found some really interesting things to read about it sounds really fascinating i really want to get my hands on this one moving on then i watched spring recently which is um, a 2014 film by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, who um, are the directors and writers of Resolution, which we're talking about today. And um, have you all seen this? Yes. No, but this is definitely timely. Oh. Yeah. Oh, you need to. You need to see this. Yeah. It's, I haven't seen it either. It's definitely, it's grown on me even more, like kind of after watching it. And it's up there as one of my favorite horror films. It's actually it's it's a beautiful film it's it's a love story at its heart yeah and i find that really fascinating in terms of horror and i'm sure that would be a great episode to look at kind of romance or love stories um in terms of the horror genre 
but it's it's haunting it's metaphorically and um literally about regeneration and renewal and metamorphosis and like i say it's a love story at its heart and um the horrors always there it always kind of permeates the film but in a very kind of subtle way and it's very very clever the the concept is insanely original which i think we'll talk about in terms of resolution and it blends science with mythology which i absolutely love and it basically just to give you a, a quick rundown of the plot um a man his mother dies and he's kind of in a bit of personal turmoil he doesn't know what to do with his life and he literally just packs up and leaves america and goes to italy and he meets a woman there and he obviously falls in love with her but she has a very dark um secret and it's kind of him finding out about that and and um, how that kind of plays out. But the ending, especially, even though I wouldn't say it was necessarily shocking, it was so unexpected. And I think that uh, Benson and Moorhead are definitely two of my kind of favourite directors, and I can't wait to see what else they're going to produce because they're so original and they, you know, they look at things in such a unique way. Um, and this, um, I was listening to the soundtrack as well today. The soundtrack is beautiful. Um, you know, huge recommend uh, for spring as well. Um, and I know that their new film, their latest one, I believe, is going to be looking at Alistair Crowley. Oh, cool! Yeah, so that is a figure I'm. I've always been interested in in history. Yeah, so I'm very, very excited about that because I just think they're really, really exciting players. But you know, it's, it's a great kind of companion piece to Resolution. Nice. This is another one to add to my uh, growing list. <laughs> And um, Anthony, you've also watched another a, a TV film, One Step Beyond. Oh yes, I was forgetting about that. We were chatting before the show, and I mentioned that, and I forgot to tell you about it. One Step Beyond is a it's an anthology program, and it dates to I think it's nineteen sixty one. I want to say so. It ran contemporaneous. I think it slightly preceded the Twilight Zone, and then ran contemporaneously to it um but it got canceled after i think two or three seasons uh the show was similar except it had the angle where all the stories were purported to be true so you'd get these paranormal situations or ghost stories and uh some of them are kind of creepy but again all purported to be based in fact of some kind uh, so I've been enjoying it. And there, there's some really good um, actors on it. Uh, I watched a show. One show was with Charles Bronson, who plays a boxer. And in that story, um, there is a it takes place in England during the war when all the, the bombings were going on in World, World War Two. And um it revolves around this boxer who died. And if he, if he appears to another boxer before a fight, it, it seems to uh, presage that they're about to die. So that was a pretty cool show. Uh, another one was called The Dead Part of the House. And it's about this little girl who moves into this new home with her, her father. The, the mother is deceased, and she's got a bad relationship with the father. But she's got these dolls, and she's talking about how the, the dolls talk to her. 
but it becomes clear that there are like ghosts in the house and it's pretty creepy. Good. You know, that's, I'm just trying to give you a, a sampling of some of the, the themes, but um, you can get them on DVD. Uh, there's a new set where they've, they've restored them a little bit. They're not great to look at, but it's the best version of these shows that we've seen so far. If you happen to go online, look for the set that has like 70 episodes. There's one with like 50, uh, but the one with 70 is the most complete version of this with a little bit better image quality. Um, but that's one step beyond. And the one little other anecdote, the host and director was John Newland. John Newland went on to direct the original Don't Be Afraid of the Dark uh, in 1973. Very interesting guy. But anyway, a good show that is unknown to many, many people. And I've been, I'm a kind of a latecomer to it. So I've been really enjoying yeah. it. Again, I've, I've never heard of this one, but anything that's sort of in the vein of Twilight Zone, I'm very interested in seeing because Twilight Zone, man, it may be my favorite television show ever. Yes, I think you'll like this. Yeah, sounds awesome. So I'm going to have to get my hands on that box set. Yeah, more recommendations from Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> my list is huge. Um, so... <laughs> If we then move on to um, the main topic for today, which is obviously resolution, um, the film is um, an example of a meta horror. So um, we thought we'd just kind of talk about that briefly beforehand, because uh, I don't think we've actually talked about meta horror before, have we, on the show? I don't believe so. No, no. just I think passing references to specific films, but um, not, not so much in detail. So meta um, is in terms of the definition of a creative work, it refers to itself or to the conventions of its genre. It's self-referential. And at its simplest, you could say that it actually is a film um, within a film, something that actually comments uh, through that device on the relationship between the film and the audience. So meta-horror plays on the knowledge, rules and conventions of the genre within the horror community. So it's very much about that um, audience relationship. And this is basically clever horror. It refers to established rules. As an example, Scream uh, from 1999 is a perfect kind of postmodern commentary on the rules of the slasher film, which evolve with each sequel. And in addition to playing on the audience's knowledge of the rules of the genre, the various installments in the Scream franchise also break the rules and conventions to continually shock and entertain um, what is really a niche audience. And this approach with comedic and horrific effect can be found in a variety of films just off the top of uh, my head. You know, Your Next from 2011, obviously Cabin in the Woods from 2012, uh, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon from 2006, which is, again, um, a slasher uh, meta horror film, uh, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil from 2010, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein in 1948, uh, you could say Shaun of the Dead um, from, I believe, 1999. Uh, there, are, there are so many. Um, even Peeping Tom, I think, from 1960, because of the fact that, you know, it's the audience kind of desiring that death on screen. And it's that relationship between the camera within the film and the audience itself and our expectations. And I think that really um, lends itself to readings of resolution that we'll get into. Um, but, you know, we have obviously New Nightmare 
um, uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, I should say, from 1994. Um, Hot Fuzz, I think, as well, to some extent, as well as Shaun of the Dead. Uh, Young, oh, yeah. Young Frankenstein from 1974. Uh, Mad, Madhouse from 1974 as well. Um, I, you know, I, absolute loads we can reel off. But, I mean, are there any kind oh. of favourites that you have? In terms of meta, you know, do do you enjoy these films? I like them. Um, had I had I had time, I was I'm a little overcome by events this week, so I wasn't able to get a TV terror segment out to you folks. But uh, had I had the time, I was going to cover Michael Jackson's Thriller um, music video, and yeah. uh, I That's had a good one. The, the idea I was actually, you know, meta. I was having a hard time, like satisfactorily defining it for myself to make sure I understood the genre. So I started reading these different articles online and, you know, lists of movies like the ones that Becky just rattled off and thriller came up and they, they point out how, you know, at one point they're at the movie theater. So there's like this movie within a movie thing going on and how, you know, it is self-aware of, of the tropes of the genre because it's really like a, a little mini movie that includes, everything from zombies to werewolves. So that would be another ex- example. And of course, a favorite of mine. Yeah, definitely a good one. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I know a lot of people dislike Cabin in the Woods, but that's a film that I really liked. And, you know, I thought that the the twist in that film is very well done, personally. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed I, Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, it's very layered. There are so many kind of meta elements to it, kind of on top of each other, which is just typical Joss Whedon, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think even Providence, you could say, um, and uh, Neonomicon, a lot of Alan Moore's work is absolutely meta as well. Some folks point out that there's a fine line between something being meta versus just like a spoof. So Becky mentioned Young Frankenstein, and there's others. Uh, where you know, at a certain point, I guess if it's predominantly just for laughs or making fun of a genre, it might just be more in the parody um, category. Like but, not another scary so, movie. Yeah. Well, I was thinking something like My, My Name is Bruce. And whether, I love that movie, but I, I, I don't know if it's meta or whether, like you say, whether it's just a spoof. Um, and the same could be possibly be said for Tucker. And Dale versus Evil, although that's taken that's, that takes itself more seriously. I think. Would you say that, that that that's kind of where the line is drawn? Do you think? I think it's a hard line to draw sometimes. Now I've seen Tucker and Dale on those lists that I was mentioning that I was reading. Um, but again, you know, where where is it just a spoof? Where is it a, a meta kind of a thing? It, it might be a subjective call. I think it's sort of that same line where you say what is horror and what is suspense. Because a lot of times people debate that, you know, uh, like, you know, some people will say Psycho is a suspense film and not a horror film. And people still argue about that to this day. Yeah. Now, if you ask Guillermo del Toro, he'll tell you this. He'll say suspense is not a genre. He'll say suspense is a technique. And so he kind of corrects everyone by saying the genres are, you know, you have genres like horror and then you have thriller, but suspense in itself is not a genre. It's it's a technique okay, that happens that's interesting. in both of those. And I thought, like, okay, that makes sense. Usually the classic definition of suspense are those moments in, say, a Hitchcock film where 
you know, the bomb is under the table and the suspense is that no one knows it. You know, the audience has been made privy to this thing that's counting down. Um, but uh, the genre would be, a, you know, it's a thriller film that it's, it's within. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Coming back to the difference between, you know, a spoof and a, a meta film, you know, spoof is, in terms of its definition of the word, it's a humorous imitation of something in which the characteristics of that um, are exaggerated for comic effect, whereas um, obviously meta refers to itself or the conventions of its genre in a self-referential way but it plays on like i said the knowledge rules and conventions of the genre so i think it's um very much designed for a much smaller audience and it looks at the kind of structure of the you know the piece of art as opposed to i think spoofs can be a lot more kind of surface you know not as detailed i think meta is very it's a very clever and complex kind of subgenre personally like the more you delve the more you find kind of thing yes yeah i think yeah. that's where i kind of draw the line between the two okay yeah and i think you have to be a horror movie fan to appreciate these kind of films in a way yeah whereas with something like um what is it scary movie like people who aren't necessarily horror fans but have seen the odd thing can can appreciate that and can laugh at that whereas they wouldn't necessarily be as um you know knowledgeable or, or kind of understand a lot of the messages in a particularly meta horror film so it's kind of for like a broader audience and, and then you know more kind of yeah. niche audience that's how i kind of draw the line but yeah yeah i think that's a a good way to draw it so um moving on then to the main feature uh resolution uh we open in the film on somebody called Michael Danube who is a professional graphic designer who lives in the city with his wife and the first shots of the film are actually a video of his former best friend Chris Daniels and he's a junkie his behavior is really strange it's very erratic and it's being filmed as if it's you know somebody like a kind of omniscient kind of person filming it it's not him filming himself with the camera and a map is included with the video and we get an initial scene where michael has you know discussion with his wife she doesn't want him to go but he decides to make one last attempt to save his friend from from drug addiction seeing this as a kind of call for help and i just wanted to kind of ask what you thought of the opening of the film and the premise i mean was that believable that he just received a video of his friend being filmed by we don't know who at that point and with a map about where to go and he's just literally like we say very erratic very strange behavior i had those kinds of questions myself when i was watching it and i think it works on that level where the filmmakers probably know that it's not fully explained and they they do kind of explain it later but in a sense, it, it works in the beginning of a film where you don't really know what's going on anyway. And you're going to you're going to be driven along by these questions like, you know, what what am I watching? You know, what is this film he has and how did he get it? That kind of a thing. I think uh, that's how it, it draws you in, isn't it? it you, you, you're asking questions straight away. What's going on? Who's filming them? Because, you, you know, it's right from the start. It's like it's like they're in a. Uh, like a found footage kind of film with like wobbly hand handy cam type stuff, and you're thinking, well, somebody's filming this. So, but they're not acknowledging the fact that somebody's filming it. So straight away, it kind of catches you uh, on the wrong foot, really, and you're you're thinking, wow, oh, okay, what's going on? 
Yeah, exactly. first time through, I didn't even think about anyone filming it. You know, specifically, I was just like, "What is going on with this guy? Why is he, you know, just acting crazy like this?" And then, of course, you do see him smoking the the crack pipe, I believe, in that first <laughs> scene, and and you're like, "Okay, well, he's he certainly got problems," you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just I like how the film sets up a bunch of questions at the very beginning. Yeah, it's definitely. funny though that that was the first thing I thought when I saw it was who's filming it and why are they not acknowledging them, and I didn't get that. Yeah, yeah you know sometimes movies take liberties with us where the way when you see footage in a film sometimes it's um, it's not realistic the way it would have been captured in real life. So yeah. I'm wondering is is that what's going on or is there something yeah. else? But I had a lot of vague questions you know, rattling around uh, the back of my head while I'm, you know, just trying to take in the the opening of the story. Yeah, same for me. And I think it just, it was so unrealistic in the way that it, I think on a second or whatever it is now, however many times we've watched it, it, that really stood out that it wasn't believable and it took me out of the film a little bit. But from watching it again and my readings of the film, I think that really plays into the film's commentary, but I'll, I'll touch upon that later. So um, Michael promises to return after one week, um, promises his wife, and he then follows the map to a rundown house where he hears Chris ranting and shooting a pistol. And uh, Mike cautiously approaches the house and Chris reacts positively after quite a, I think, a very humorous exchange and invites him in, um, again, ranting about various subjects. And Benson co-directed and wrote the screenplay. Um, what did you think of the dialogue between the two characters? Because this is really where we learn more about Mike, because we don't really get much on him at the opening with, with his wife. It's kind of, he's very much kind of defined by his relationship, I think, with Chris. I found the dialogue um, really good, actually. It just seemed so natural. Uh, it, it didn't seem like it was uh, written by somebody and that they were just quoting lines it just seemed like old friends um i think that was yeah one of the strongest uh, parts of the of the movie actually was was the the dialogue between the two main characters um and just how real and, and natural it all seemed yeah i would agree with yeah. that the the dialogue is really the action of the film for the most part this is one of those small films it almost is reminiscent of those movies that are adapted from a play and you can kind of tell because it's all yeah. very like set in one location. This almost could be like that, like where you'd have one or just a, a couple of sets if you, someone actually turned this into a play. Because it's just a couple of characters and the, the action is their dialogue and the dialogue is the characterization. And I thought it was good. I thought I, I believe these guys I, and uh, what they were saying kind of tantalized us with the, the mystery that develops. So I thought it worked yeah, I would totally agree. I, I think that uh, both guys played off of each other really well, you know, and I, I felt that uh, Michael really did care about Chris, and that really came through. Like, he was there trying to help out his friend, you know, which uh, he yeah. he just seemed like a, a good guy, you know, like someone I would want to hang out with. Yeah, he's a noble guy, right? I mean, his friend, uh, from all accounts, has turned into such a you know, a, a lying sack of doo-doo that, you know, he's lost all his friends and um, no one trusts him anymore. Most people have given up on him, but here's this guy who's willing to take a, 
week out of his life to live in, in this hellhole and put up with all the, you know, not to jump ahead, but there's, you know, just dangers being there. So, um, yeah, very cool characters. I would definitely agree. And I think the script writing is, um, like Anthony said, the action of the film, but the heart of it as well. I mean, the, you know, the way that it hints at things like um, you were just saying, he's lost all of his friends because of how he's acted. And we get a kind of hint at what that could be because of all people, um, it was Mike's wedding, something happened. And we don't, you yeah. know, what actually happened isn't revealed, but the way that they talk about it, he says, oh, you know, I can't kind of speak to your wife again kind of thing. So I thought it was a really subtle, clever way to introduce that dynamic and also show how much Mike is willing to kind of go out on a limb for him as well. And I thought it was hilarious. I mean, I think Chris, the actor who plays him, um, I think his name is Vinnie Curran. I don't think he's been in that much else. He's also in Spring. He has a very minor role in Spring. But he's, I thought it was hilarious. I mean, when he asked him about making chili, you know, do you want some chili? And he asked, oh, does it have crack in it? You know, little lines like that. I thought yeah. it really, really yeah. did make me laugh. And um, Yeah, he was very um, good. Yeah, when they're reminiscing yeah. about um, past conquests and one of the women that he talks about, he says, you know, she was a punisher of eyes, which did make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of I fun mean, yeah. Yeah, it felt like natural conversation that you have with your friends. Yes, yeah. that's how I talk you with know. my friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is one of the strengths of um, Spring as well. The dialogue yes. between the characters in Spring, you could you could tell it they're they're of the same ilk. Um, oh, completely. It's just very one. naturalistic, convincing um, characters and dialogue. Yeah, and that final like monologue in Spring as well. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Michael is trying to convince Chris to go to rehab, basically, but he's really kind of out of it. He keeps talking about the birds and shooting at the birds. He's got a pistol um, at that point. Um, but he refuses to go, and Michael uses a stun gun and handcuffs Chris to a pipe. Oh, that was great. <laughs> that, that was funny. <laughs> I didn't see that I coming. I didn't see it coming. No, no, <laughs> yes. absolutely not. I was like, what's he doing? <laughs> Exactly. It was the fucking birds. You're right. I got you. Okay, here it comes. Shit! God damn! Oh, fucking bullets! I'm a fucking bullets! God damn Chris, it, man! It's okay, man. All right. I see your pipe. You see it? Yes. Yes. It's outside. Okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go outside and I'm gonna get it. Okay. And I'm gonna bring it back to you. Bring it back. Just have a seat on your mattress and chill out. You're the boss. All right. I'll be waiting here. All right. You're a good friend, Michael. Yeah. I'm sorry this had to happen when you came to visit me. I came here to ask you one last time. Can we get in my truck and take you somewhere? <laughs> oh, come on, dude. No way, man. This, Mike, this is my fucking destiny, man. You know that. All I'm asking is that you get clean for one week, okay? If after that you want to go back to dying here, that's fine. No. No way. Okay. Yeah, all right. Well, goodbye. What? Mike, don't fuck it here, dude. Don't leave. Finish your drink, man. Come on, sit down. Come on, finish your drink. Sit down, finish your drink, talk to me. How's, how's your wife? How's, um... Jennifer. Jennifer. Is good. Jennifer's good, right? Okay, that's good. Is she still mad at me about the wedding? Yes. Really? Yeah, actually, yeah. Nobody, nobody really likes you very much right now. Oh, that sucks. You can fix it. <laughs> oh, God, there's no, Do you remember? I don't think I could fix that. God. Oh, God, Mike. I got a fucking dog. 
Can you believe that? I, I finally got a fucking dog. It's so fucking awesome. She doesn't live here, but she visits me every day. We're, uh, we're writing a book together on uh, squirrels, her idea. When's the she last time you slept? Oh, fuck. Oh, jeez. I don't know. Well, all right. Really? Yeah. You're leaving? All right, man. In seven days, oh! the last molecules Fucking of that shit oh! leaving your body. <laughs> After that, you want to die? Oh! I will throw you a key. Oh! You'll never see me again. Mike, what are you doing? Mike, what the fuck? Look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the store. I'll be back in a half hour. Mike! Mike, fuck off! Just Mike, take this fucking off me right fucking now! Try and sleep it off. Michael! Fuck you, Mike! Are you fucking kidding me? Mike! Mike, oh my fucking god, Mike, you're a fucking dead thing! Fucking let me out of this fucking thing! Michael! Oh! Um, and obviously Mike will go out and get shopping and I think another humorous part at one point he says about going out and um, Chris says oh do you want me to come with you <laughs> it just made me laugh <laughs> <laughs> and um, when Mike returns from a shopping trip he actually sees Chris trying to cut through his handcuff with a toothbrush so he's trying everything he can to get out <laughs> um, and again the next day um, after a horrible night sleeping on the floor in this dilapidated little cabin Mike has to use a stun gun again when uh, Chris kind of attacks him and tries to break free uh, so he's obviously um, kind of cracking under the pressure at that point and then local kind of drug dealers Mike and Billy show up and from their conversations it appears that they all kind of went to school together and they tell Mike that Chris is holding their drugs and they want them back Chris warns Mike not to mess with them as they've become more violent and, and unpredictable since, um, you know, he knew them. I think at one point he says um, one of them hit a woman and her eyeball popped out. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's just kind yeah, of those. I was like, classy guys, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but but I feel like, I don't know how it is for you guys in the UK, but, you know, most people you go to high school with, there are those people who end up getting really into drugs and either – they become like uh, Chris in this film or they become the drug dealers and, you know, like those other guys. And I, I mean, I was watching this and thinking, yep, I know people just like this, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's nice that it kind of dropped in those those little lines like that. It was very kind of impactful. I thought, you know, you, it wasn't, you didn't see any gore, but to hear that, you were kind of like, ooh. Yeah. Yeah. And even though they were minor characters as well, they were still... Again, they were just really convincing in their roles. Yeah, even that's the thing, again, about these directors. Um, all of the actors, even people in the very, very minor roles, are kind of at the top of their game. And you don't always get that with kind of low-budget horror, I mean, yeah. I think, personally. So I think that's, you know, very telling about yeah. the kind of quality and, that they bring. Often but, the, sec- the uh, secondary and you know, uh, tertiary characters get weaker in, in a low budget production, but everyone was really good and had a lot of screen presence. Mike then takes a walk and he meets members of a, apparently UFO religion. Hey, how's it going, man? Good. Thanks. Right on, right on. Hey, uh, you don't mind me asking what, uh, what are you doing out here? Oh, I'm, uh, just visiting my friend. Very cool, very cool. The only reason I'm asking 
is that we come out here just about every day after prayer and we never see anyone ever. So this is awesome. I'm Justin. Uh, <clears throat> hi, I'm, uh, I'm Michael. Michael, it's fantastic to meet you. This is David. Hi. And this is Aaron. How you doing, brother? Good. Yeah. So you guys are like in a, uh, a church group. Basically, basically. Our whole thing is just making sure that people know that the celestial Messiah will land his vessel before the end of days. What did you make of these guys? Because they were the first, obviously, after uh, yeah. um, the drug dealers, but they were the first kind of element of this kind of notion of, okay, something's not quite right here. Yeah, definitely. This was like one of my favorite parts of the film because I have a strange fascination with UFO cults and religions. I don't know. I, you know, too much X-Files, I guess. But <laughs> like, I didn't see it coming because I thought, okay, they're members from a church. And, you know, he he says something like, you know, uh, our Lord and Savior is, is going to touch down in the ship, you know, yeah. <laughs> something, something along those lines. And I was just like, what? They were <laughs> so, just creepy. Just the, oh, the way yeah. they were dressed and their haircuts and just the way they yeah. kind of smiled but didn't smile. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, that made me laugh, that line. Uh, yeah. I thought they might have been like Mormons at first. And then when he said that, yes. it was, that made me laugh out loud. It's a little Lovecraftian in the sense of like, you know, those tropes of finding yourself in a town where everyone is strange and you're, you know, this stranger in a strange town and there's, you know, mysteries and weird people. Yeah. Twin Peaks kept coming to mind as well. I was thinking, this is mm-hmm. really, uh, this is, yeah, it's just everything's kind of slightly off. Yes, and I think that was kind of exacerbated by, I believe this is the first time we get a kind of flare, which appears to me to be like um, when you've overexposed film. Yes, yeah, like, yeah, they, uh, they keep like- cropping up, don't they? Yeah, and I think yes. this is the first time, um, just before he meets the the kind of members of this religious cult, whatever it is. So that kind of plays into that that notion, like you say, of, of things not being quite right. Yeah, those light leaks that would create uh, mm. yeah, the flare flare up on the on the image. They're really yeah. good with light, these guys. Um it's yeah. the same in spring as well. They they just they they really capture the the I think they must either film at the very end of the day or in the beginning of the day um to really catch that really beautiful light so whoever there whoever does their um whoever's their like uh, director of photography whether it's one of the two or a separate guy he's he's really good definitely because spring just looks beautiful as well so then mike returns to the house and finds a set of strange photographs which seem to be of some kind of strange ritual um a bit blurred but very creepy um which are just kind of under the house and Chris says that he found them when he was kind of storing his drugs or whatever, because, you know, there's, I think there are weapons underneath there as well. And, you know, not much more is kind of thought of it. Mika and Billy return, but they are kind of scared off by Charles, another character, who is a tribal security guard, kind of, I believe. I loved this guy. I thought he was yes. great. He was fantastic, wasn't he? He was so impassive. And again, um, I don't think he's um, someone who's done much acting if any I, don't, I can't remember off the top of my head but I, I, I did look at it once and I don't on the IMDB and I don't think he's done much Rise and shine cunts oh fuck wow you make a like 
Mike, don't let me chain up here without a gun. Mike, don't be stupid. Just give me the crazy. We'll bounce. Look, Billy, we don't have your shit, okay? Look, Chris either smoked it all or he lost it. I don't know. But I can write you a check right now for whatever he owes you if you'd be willing to call the... Oh, fuck that shit. Come on, Chris, give me the fucking twist, bitch. Fuck you, Billy. I don't owe you shit. Shut the fuck up. Look, Bill, I will give you more than enough money to buy some more, okay? Billy. Yeah. Someone's coming up the hill, dog. Fuck you. Fuck you to me. What are you doing here? I'm, uh, I'm just visiting my friend. Yeah, what the fuck's your friend doing here? Mike, who is that? Don't let him know I'm in here. I'm, uh, Michael. Charles. Is there a problem? Yeah, there's a problem. This is my goddamn building. Oh, so Chris, Chris didn't pay his rent? Who the fuck is Chris? Look, um, I'm trying to get him out of here, and I need less than a week. Is there any way we can work something out? Well, that would be impossible. See, that's the reservation border. We're on a reservation. And you need tribal council approval to stay here. Okay, look, um, how about I write you a check right now, and five days from now you will never know we were even here. Are you serious? Yeah. Tell you what, to bring me cash tomorrow, you call this number, and I want this place cleaned up in five days. Do you understand me? I do. A lot of drug addicts buried in these hills. You know that? this point what were your kind of perceptions did you think it was going down a particular direction you know in terms of maybe supernatural elements or if it's going to be more of a thriller i didn't really know where it was going at this point i I just thought man there are all these strange people in this town and there has to be a reason for it yeah i didn't really know what what was going on um yeah at at this point I, i wasn't sure either go ahead matt i was just gonna say it it all served to just um increase this sense of of dread and uh, just this otherness about the situation at this point things are just off and every little discovery just increases that sense of of uh, unease yeah yes that's the word unease yeah it's like we're not in kansas anymore Um, I got the impression maybe this was filmed in somewhere in California, like out in the desert, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. maybe near uh, Nevada. Yeah. But it, it was an interesting location, I felt. So that whole uh, thing about this this place in time and the location, is, it all plays into the to the story later. Yes, yes, definitely. I think so. But I think these first little indications, like the pictures that are found, it's just enough to give us the hint that, if we thought this was just about him dealing with his friend, we we were getting the hint that there's a bigger story that's about to be told. And I, I think that's all we know at that point. But you, you have enough to know that things are about to expand. But because of the characters and the people that keep appearing, the the um, you know the photos and things like that are almost secondary at this at this point. They're kind of almost in the back of your mind because. Yeah. You keep meeting these new strange characters. It's not until a little bit later, I think, that, that these the the artifacts or whatever the findings start to take a more significance. Yes, and I think that's very intentional in terms of the meta aspects of the film, in that yeah. the story and the narrative itself becomes more and more prominent. And that's exactly what the, the filmmakers want you to be thinking about. But obviously before it's kind of disguised a little bit. I think that's very clever. Well, I hope you got a good fucking deal because this place really sucks. What is that smell? I shit in the bucket. 
so at this point, Mike then finds some film footage. And this is, I believe he finds this at a local, just wandering nearby. And it's, I don't know, it looks like an old kind of home. It was a location that looked like a house had burned down and the stone chimney was what remained. And then nearby was like an old shed. Yeah, and a rock kind of falls out of nowhere, doesn't it, to kind of draw his attention. And then the door to the shed opens by itself. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so, I, I was like, ooh, that's creepy. Yeah, this is when I was starting to think, hmm, this looks very kind of, you know, supernatural, more so than all of the characters having a larger effect in terms of a thriller. So he finds this creepy film footage, brings it back. And I'll tell you what, there's so much kind of equipment hanging around. I mean, I've just moved into a new place and this, wherever they are in the middle of nowhere, has way more kind of technology than I've got at the moment. <laughs> you know, they've got, he finds, you know, a TV, doesn't he? He's got the uh, projector which did make me laugh. But he then plays this footage and it appears to be a man and a woman with um, wounds, like kind of gaping wounds or something on their skin because it's very grainy. So again, it's very creepy. I don't know what to make of it. Um, And this leads uh, Mike to discuss the film that Chris apparently sent and he tells him he didn't send it. He doesn't have any equipment there to record it. Why'd you send me the video? I didn't send you a video. Yeah, you did. The link, you emailed me. Mike, do you see a computer or a camera around here, man? I sold all that shit a year ago to Shitty Carl. Look, dude, you haven't slept in like two days, and my brain is fucked, obviously, so why don't you uncuff me before you go crazy? Yeah, you're right, I need sleep. And then Mike finds a book of creepy campfire stories on their doorstep. And coming back to what um, Anthony was saying, the word story is used consistently by uh, Mike and Chris, which I found to be very interesting. It's not just, you know, I've found, you know, these photographs or this film. It's, I've, you know, this is a story. Yes. Yeah. And Very, um, very deliberate. Yes. Yeah. So again, starting to really draw your attention to that fact. And I was my... thinking Evil Dead at this point. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. We've got, well, we've got, well, we've got Cabin and then they find this, this old sort of, it was a sort of like an old leather book, bound book on the doorstep. Well, I think, again, that kind of level of meta, um, you know, in the film, I think this one has much more than we would necessarily think because I think it does comment on so many different horror films but in a very very subtle way yeah so i, so think I was thinking is it gonna go is it gonna go like um what's the word i'm looking for not not spiritual paranormal or whatever you know like like evil dead is that where it's going yeah right evil now? dead uh, evil dead's a pretty good example because that's another case where the ostensibly the stories about people who go to this cabin in the woods and when they get there they find these artifacts like the the tape recording and the book that tell you that there was a story that happened before this story, which is the key to understanding what's going on now. And that's kind of what I thought was going on also at this point in the story. And then this is might be a little bit of an out there comment. I don't know, but it was reminding me a little bit of like a game, almost like a text game where, in the sense of your sense of place where, you know, the home base was this crappy house where his, his friend is chained to the bed. But then as the scenes go on, 
you know, he visits this place and that place, and you're kind of building a mental map of the surrounding area. And then, like, everything he's finding are almost like puzzle pieces. And I was thinking this is yeah. going to be kind of like a yeah. puzzle movie. That's so those are the good, kinds yeah, of, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of like where, you know, you try to example, figure, yeah. what, what is this movie about? That Those were the thoughts I was thinking. The footage that he played was so grainy. Like, it was... For me, anyway, it was really hard to tell what in the heck was going on. Mm-hmm. So well, I really, I had no clue. Yeah, that reminded me a little bit of um, Insidious, was it? With Ethan Hawke? Uh, oh, um, yes. Sinister. Sinister, Sinister, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, the grainy footage. The wrong yeah. Thing. yeah, Sinister. I knew I said the wrong word. Uh, where, yeah, again, you've got the, this these uh, story being told via other media that's another good comparison yeah definitely and i think that you know anthony's comment about this being a puzzle is very much so and um, because that, that's for me again the core elements of a meta film for the audience to try and you know follow those breadcrumbs and try and make sense of something even if at the end that isn't necessarily there isn't anything to make sense of if that makes sense it's playing on that notion of the relationship between the audience and, and the film and that knowledge yeah. Right, right. Uh, like personally. like the setting setting up the expectations that are the result of certain known tropes, right? Yes. So when they dangle they dangle them out there, it's kind of like a a tease or a bait and switch or some kind of thing to challenge your expectations. Yes, and that's the thing. I think this film very much plays on those expectations, and um, and the ending for you know, better or worse, depending on, you know, how you perceive it, very much so is, is a commentary on, on that. Just to kind of continue, um, the book of Campfire Stories, he returns it to the library, Mike, and he finds um, where the book is meant to go on the shelf, uh, film slides. And he has a projector, so he looks at those. And again, we're getting creepy images. And he's thinking maybe it's a prank by Billy and uh, Micah. Uh, but Chris, all the time, is kind of dismissing the idea. And obviously, he's suffering at this point quite severely. And it's it's Mike that's kind of probing. And, you know, we've discussed the clues and the kind of strange encounters. Um, but I did come across a quite interesting quote in an article um, when I was researching the film. And I wanted to see what you thought of it. Um, and the author basically says, uh, like an indie analog to the cabin in the woods and set, in fact, in a cabin in the woods, the meta horror movie resolution makes its own creative crisis the star trying to make something original out of elements so hackneyed the filmmakers can't bear to reproduce them. What starts as the simple story of one friend trying to wean another off drugs by force becomes freighted, gimmick by ridiculous gimmick, a willfully absurd dogpile of horror movie scare tactics, escapees from an asylum down the road, ominous old photographs and 8mm movies, webcam footage from an unseen camera, and the whole thing is set on an Indian reservation. That last element recalls Stanley Kubrick's own seeming uh, mockery of the genre in The Shining, in which an Indian burial ground adds more grim mythology to a hotel that has plenty already. And that was written by Scott Tobias of the AV Club. And I just wanted to see what you thought about that quote. I mean, obviously, it touches on some elements that we haven't um, come across yet. And it also mentions the woman who appeared at the window who did terrify me. In the middle of the uh, night, I think. I think it's the first jump. night. Yeah, she really made me jump in her face. Yeah. Like, 
I was not expecting that at all. No. And that's, I think, the first night she's tapping on the window. And Chris just literally dismisses it by saying, oh, it's somebody from the asylum down the road. Um, but, yeah, I thought that bit was pretty scary. But what did you think about his um, kind of readings of the film? It doesn't sound like he enjoyed it too much. Ridic- calls it a, a ridiculous gimmick, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's or, kind of or, uh, dismissive of it, really. Or is he making the point he's, that, like, yeah, I think that, he's making that, the point. That, yeah. yeah, that by themselves, these are hackneyed, you know, shop-worn elements. They're taking them and kind of quilting them into something new and putting a spin on everything. Yeah. Oh, do you think that's yeah, more I, what he's getting at? I think so, yeah. I, I like the line where it says, um, trying to make something original out of elements so hackneyed, the filmmakers can't bear to reproduce them and i think that's exactly what's what they are doing they're 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 sort of leading they're leading your expectations down certain paths and then it, it is like they almost they just they can't bear to continue down that particular path so do something new something else so that, that um that you're introduced to you're thinking well your, your expectation is that it's going to go somewhere and but none of it does and it's on to the next thing and you think, oh well then this is going to happen but then it doesn't, and we're on to the next thing. And that's what makes it interesting, I think. Yeah, I would totally agree. Mike then goes to find Charles, and he bribes him for information. And Charles warns him um, and basically tells him to, to leave. But, you know, he, he persists, and he asks more questions. And Charles um, does tell him eventually that French students use the area for research um, after, I think, he finds... I'm not sure if it was the campfire stories or a separate book, but it's full of French writing. Mike then returns uh, to to the house and he finds a con man who is kind of in the house chatting away to Chris, who wants to buy it. And Chris is trying to scam him for money. (laughs) That that was really weird. (laughs) That was really weird. Yeah, this was like the strangest part of the movie where I was like, uh, how does this even fit, you know? Yeah. I, I What's he doing in the middle of nowhere trying to buy this shack? <laughs> <laughs> he's a shack. He's he's on a mattress on the floor. He's chained to the pipes <laughs> and he's trying to buy a house from him. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't even let him out of the handcuffs. He's just like talking to him. It's like, okay. Oh, um, very, very strange. It is very strange. <laughs> it really is. And then uh, Mike tries to rewatch the video that he received in the email and it's changed and it's now an argument that Mike and Chris had just moments before um, about whether or not they should make a deal with the con man, um, which really kind of took me back a little bit. I didn't expect that at all. Did you? I didn't see it coming. No. There are a lot of weird people out here. Okay. Are you sure you don't know who shot that video? No, I'm not sure, man. I was high as fuck. Okay. Take a look at the clip one more time. Mike, my blood sugar is low and I'm about to pass out. Will you please give me beans? You know, you really fucked us on that deal, Mike. What? Why did you follow my lead? Did you what follow the my fuck? lead, man? I was with the money with you. God, we have my fucking brain damage? You're eating a real meal. This is amazing. Mike, if my fucking mind is mush, don't make me go through this. Dude, just calm down, okay? I'm. Fuck. I'm seeing the same thing. Satellites. What? Yeah, man. 
I don't know how they work either, but that's satellites. That is government satellites, and they have, they watch everything. Chris, why would the government be watching you? Why would the government be watching you, Mike? Look, I don't know what you've done. I came here to help you, okay? That's it. That's Bullshit. all. Bullshit. You came here to help yourself, and you know it. You are, you're absolutely right. I'm, uh, I'm actually, I am. I'm a government spy. Yeah. Yeah. Or no, wait, maybe I'm a... I'm a mass murderer, child molester. Oh, no, you're just being a dick. I'm trying to tell you, man, someone's fucking following us. If someone's following us, why don't you uncuff me so we can get away from them? Will you go into rehab? Oh, here we go. I don't know, Mike. If you don't go in, you'll die, you know that. Will you go in? Look, I don't know. And this is retarded. Look, if five days got you from no to maybe, then I'm willing to risk it. If you're trying to atone for all those times we were kids and I saved you from getting your ass just Beaten. This is a shitty way of going about it. You saved me? You punch like a windsock. It's horrifying. And if your wife ever sees you punch anybody, you are in deep shit. She's going to leave you for a stronger man. You know, your lack of belief in my good intentions here is disturbing. Yeah, well, when your friend holds you hostage, you get a different perspective. These like a little story. Little story. Little story. This is where we start to see the impossible uh, coming in more and more things that just can't yeah. be. It yeah. just raises your sense of unease. Like how did someone record that? You know, where would they have been? There's so many questions that it yeah, just throws I you was, off balance. I was thinking like, okay, either someone has like rigged cameras in the cabin or this is something supernatural perhaps. Yes. Yeah. And- Exactly. Me too. And then, um, and also like the government conspiracies, because Chris has thrown out a few terms just in his the satellites. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, UFOs and things. So that kind of brought all, oh, okay, government conspiracies. Could that be something? Um, but it kind of then flips itself, the film, by kind of contrasting those almost or potentially supernatural elements with um, thriller elements, whatever you want to call it, just kind of human action and because billy and micah then return and they shoot at the house and they kill the dog that chris has adopted which was really that was a really sad scene and and mike had to bury that yeah marry the dog and then afterwards chris is obviously depressed and he reveals then that he's suicidal and that he isn't going to go to rehab and i thought that was a really quiet really nice little scene and i think powerful yeah and I think that Peter, um, I think it's Salella and Vinnie Curran as the main protagonists, um, their performances during this scene were, you know, kind of stand out. Did you agree? Yeah, I would definitely agree. Yeah. I, I think that it it felt very true to how people on drugs sometimes are. You know, they just, I mean, some sometimes they do want help, but oftentimes they just want to do drugs until they they die pretty much and i thought uh particularly uh vinnie Curran, you know he portrayed this really well uh i for me i thought he was the the stronger of the two actors yes i i enjoyed uh peter i'm gonna butcher his name peter solello solella solella um, i think <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i mean like i thought he was good as far as coming off as the the nice guy who cared about his friend, but I didn't feel like he was nearly as strong an actor as Vinny. Yeah. Look, I know this is a dark moment, but it does get better. You keep fucking saying that, man, but you you don't get it. This is the worst of it. 
Okay. Just make it to tomorrow. Mike, I never enjoyed life until I started doing drugs. Okay, I know that's not true. It is true. Our childhood, I was miserable. Our adolescence fucking sucked. The only time I ever felt happiness was when I did a line of speed off some chick's dresser at a party. I saw you happy before that. Nah, man, I was being played. I'm happy on this. Look, life gets better. Okay, you... You were just dealt a shitty hand. Oh, Jesus, man. My parents... I do drugs because my body chemistry makes me want to do drugs. If I had your parents, you know what I'd be, man? I'd be a guy with rad parents who fucking loves doing drugs. And God, I fucking hate people. Fuck, man, and you know what people do? They fucking kill dogs. You, me, and fucking those apes that killed Sarah. We're all the same. The only difference is that I fucking like Sarah. I love that dog. I mean, I just... I'd rather just do drugs and end it on my terms rather than a virus or global warming or some shit just killing me slowly. This is not the same guy that painted the picture on my wall. Being creative is... it's... it's not... it... it's a curse. It condemns you to a life of failure because you can't sustain interest in any boring rat race job long enough to make a living at it. I'm creative. I make a living. You make, you're a graphic designer, man. You make pamphlets, DJ flyers. You're a fucking sellout. All right. Well, you know why none of this bothers me? It's because I can't believe a word that's come out of your mouth in the last three years. Why don't you let me go, then? Everyone you've ever known thinks that you're a liar and a thief. You know, you tricked us too many times into thinking you were pulling it together. Like, when you and I were fucking partying and doing dumb shit together, I was doing drugs and you didn't give a shit then. Oh, okay. So, so I guess then I'm, uh, I'm like your enabler. Call it whatever the fuck you want, man. Some of this shit is your fault. We all believe in the possibility that you're sick. We think about all the fucking horrible things you've done in your life and which ones we should hold you accountable for. You're saying I'm sick? I can't. I never called it a fucking illness or any of that shit at all, so fuck off. We all have temptations, okay? But most of us, we keep them in check. We keep them under control so we don't hurt the people around us. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a solid possibility that you're just fucking selfish. No fucking shit I'm fucking selfish, man. Fuck, the only reason you're fucking here and I'm chained to this fucking pipe is so that you can have something to fucking save and fucking feel good about yourself. But guess what, Michael? You're no fucking better than anyone else and your fucking life is as meaningless as mine and I swear to fucking God that I'm gonna fucking sue the shit out of you when this fucking shit is done. Yeah, that was really powerful, that scene. Yeah, maybe the best scene of the movie, really, don't you think? Yeah, and I think that his kind of monologue there, whatever you want to call it, about life and choices, um, it's very nostalgic because they're all friends and they're kind of losing that bond. It's a, it's a very sad kind of scene, but also um, it talks about 
you know, the, the finite and mortality, which spring does as well, um, quite a lot. So it's that I think that's a kind of recurring theme, but also um, in terms of the film's um, title, Resolution, he wants to write his own story. He wants to do it his way. And I think that, again, that plays into the expectations and the meta elements um, as we kind of get from this point. I think it really takes the film kind of goes up a gear um, because, I don't know, maybe because Chris has, has made that decision and I'll talk about it more as uh, for, in terms of my readings, but to kind of continue, Mike then tracks down the dog's um, original owner, who is an archaeologist named Byron, who was a member of the original French research team at the site, and he stayed. Um, and this, I thought, was just an absolutely compelling, mm-hmm. amazing scene. And every time I watch it, I kind of see something new. Um, but he basically invites Mike in and he tells him that he believes that the area isn't haunted, but that something resides there that desires stories. And he refers to angels, demons, ghosts, you know, all kinds of mythological monsters as being the same thing, essentially. Um, Something more, something that, you know, we put faces on the this kind of greater um, entity to make sense of it, which so he's got, he's getting very philosophical and talks about the, you know, the universe and, and the film of the universe, which again relates back to the um, overexposure, the flashes and that we're kind of seeing much more sporadically and um, much more often now. And he stresses the need for a beginning, a middle and an end. And he, as he's saying that he's kind of, um, turning a mirror in his hands and it keeps focusing on Mike's face in the mirror behind him so you get kind of multiple shots of Mike which again I think refers to kind of narratives and um, I don't know a kind of a cycle of, of um, events and does that make any sense to you? <laughs> yes, no it makes perfect sense I think this is a scene where we get some heavy hints about what this whole thing is all about. We desire stories. Human beings need stories. So when he's talking about, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's, whether it's aliens or Bigfoot or ghosts or whatever it is, they're all just like kind of the masks we put on, you know, the, the character in the story. And the repetition of you know a beginning a middle and an end beginning middle and end is the the, that one of those definitions of story it's something that has a beginning a middle and an end and the mirror i think is meant to connote how we these things are reflections and like we're we're looking at stories like mirrors to understand ourselves so i think all of that's in play and i think that's all you know what's I think these are all hints that that whatever this is, it has to do with story and the human need for closure or resolution. No, I think that's a guys... fantastic reading. I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, I, I certainly could not have put it better. No. <laughs> I think that pretty much... Let's just finish the show now. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that, that's point on there, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you could hear everything I said in light of the uh, phone quality. Two students came here with me. They said they were studying some related topics in 
archaeology and uh, physics, uh, something about uh, new carbon dating methods. They were very excited when they first arrived, but then the arguing began. One would accuse the other of hiding research or stealing findings. Uh, a lot of screaming and slam doors. I do not know what they were actually studying, but uh, the yelling was constant and... One day, the noise went into the woods, and they never returned. Did they go back to France? They left their passports. Uh, I tried to find them through the university, but there was no record of them. And you don't know what they were researching? I found some papers in the trash, some esoteric writings on uh, manipulating light and sound waves. Uh, I think they were searching for monsters, and they found each other. Monsters? The people come here, and Michael, to look for aliens, ghosts and cults and gateways to hell, secret military bases, looking into other dimensions. I think if there is something, it is none of these things. Or perhaps all of them. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not at all following what you're saying. How does an isolated tribesman in Ecuador know the difference between an alien, an angel, and a ghost? I have no idea. He doesn't. But he tells a story to make sense of the infinite. Sometimes when I stare up and look into the infinite, I see a film. A film? A membrane, a layer, and behind it is another and uh, another and another. Do you see? No, I, uh, I know I don't, I'm sorry. And each one has a beginning, middle, and end. Beginning, middle, Beginning, middle, end. Thank you so much for the tea and the aspirin. I, uh, I should make my way back home now. Um, um, again, I'm, I'm sorry about your dog. Mike is alarmed by Byron's eccentricity and he leaves, returns to the house and um You can't blame him there. I mean I, I think I would have yeah. gotten out of there too. I would have thought that all right, this guy is really strange. Yeah, and he's in a tiny little um what's it called? Uh, like an RV. Yeah, it just kind of yeah. Kinda of out in the middle of the desert, you know. Right kind of growing his own marijuana and <laughs> yeah. living off the land, I guess. And whatever he's weird eccentric dude. He's smoking something that's red. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't really want to know what he's smoking, I don't think. <laughs> and um as he returns, um the film projector that Mike has been using to watch some of the films turns itself on and reveals funeral photos of Mike and Chris. Which... This part was legitimately like really scary to me. I was like, wow. It really creeped me out. <laughs> Yeah, me too. I I think that was the uh, most frightening part of the film for me. Yeah. So is this I, the point where we're starting to see like 
future events. We hadn't seen anything that was potentially future up to this point, right? No, I don't. I, I don't, think, don't believe so. No, no, not until this point. And I think it's um, around about the scene when they're arguing about it because Chris is saying, "No, oh, you know, I don't know what you do when you go out. You know what you do." And he's like, "This is obviously film." I haven't put any you and me look at it because Mike's really starting to get upset and he actually mentions at this point um about that kind of there is a kind of need for stories like Anthony was saying that something wants stories and we get another flare and uh, the camera kind of shakes with it and we hear a noise with it as if something's moved at the back of the room and um Mike for sure if not Chris looks at the camera and that's a kind of breaking of the fourth wall that I happens thought. a few times, though. I think that even happens earlier on. Or well, there's, there's a couple of occasions where you get that flare, and then I'm, I'm pretty sure is it, Mike, is it Michael? He, he sort of would turn around and look as if he's heard something. And there's a moment when he's oh, in yes. the shop, and he's looking in a mirror in the shop, and, and there's the flare, and and he's kind of his eyes scan across the mirror, and then he holds, and then he suddenly holds you your eyes. Do you remember that scene where he's in the shop and he looks in the mirror? Yeah, it was really strange because he just. You know, he's, his eyes scan across that mirror, and as his eyes kind of line up with yours, he just holds your eyes for a second and then looks away yeah. again. And that was really strange. It was like it's like he could see oh, okay. you. So he's looking yeah. at, he's obviously looking from through the mirror at the camera for at a moment. At you, yes. Yeah. Yeah. As and if you to know, say, oh, look, you're watching me. You know, the, I think the other insight, it's. You know, uh, just a beat back when you were talking about how there were there were like those light leak effects on the camera and then like the noise and, you know, and that breaking of the fourth wall. I think what's happening is where traditionally a character breaks the fourth wall and looks like out at the audience. I think what's going on in here is that the fourth wall is being broken by something else, something intruding into their reality. I would completely agree with that. And that would be my ultimate reading of the film, that the entity, whatever it is, that creates a story is the audience. It's us. Yeah. So, you know, we're kind of wanting things to happen. We're willing um, the drama, the, you know, we've seen certain events. We're thinking it's going to go down a certain path. Obviously, if, you know, we're kind of horror fans who know, you know, have knowledge of the genre, we don't want it to go down that route, so it goes down a different route. So it's very much based on what our expectations are, and I think that it, that's what the overall commentary of the film is, that the entity in the film is is us, it's the audience, and it's our expectations. Right. We're, like, insinuating into their world the potential yes. paths, and yes. that's manifested as finding a CD or finding the yeah. film or slides. And the film is resisting us it's it's it keeps resisting our 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 will to take it a certain way and that's why yes. the um the bits where the fourth wall starts to break become more and more aggressive because we as the audience are getting more and more frustrated that it's not doing what we expect it to do right completely huh. yeah yeah, that's that is an interesting take on it. I had not thought of it quite that way. Yeah, I kind of sort of I I came to that as we were getting toward the ending, like Becky's talking about, where I started to realize that 
the thing that's intruding upon them is the audience becoming more and more aggressive, which is interesting. It means that, you know, the writers, the filmmakers really, they really plan this out like very carefully how, how you would tell the story and stage it and all that escalation of, of this and then parcel out clues without giving it all away too quickly. Um, it's, it's very, very clever. I Definitely. completely agree. I absolutely love them. Yeah, it's very well done. And even uh, the way it's it's photographed, when I was watching just even the beginning, I thought, ah, this is why Becky likes this film, because it's sort of like found footage. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Definitely. And I think meta elements are very kind of conflated with um, found footage when you talk about, you know, a film within a film. Yeah, yes. yeah, certainly. Yeah. Mike's laptop then plays a video that depicts their violent deaths at the hands of Micah and Billy. So mm. we're really getting the kind of future events now. And scared, they, they flee the house. And in the car, they find a CD that has a recording on it of Charles then murdering them and burning down the house. And Chris wants to leave. But Mike doesn't want to bring what he calls the curse home with him. Instead, he wants to try and appease the entity. And I believe we even hear his wife on the CD as well, which gives him that inclination that it's going to follow him. Yeah, yeah, that was that was upsetting. That bit, that was just like I yes. was like, please, please don't go home. Don't go no. back there. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. they're kind of just being manipulated into staying in that location. Um, so they just kind of wait it out, don't they? They wait and hide. Um, Micah and Billy do return to the house, and then Charles also shows up but murders Micah and Billy, which was quite, again, we don't really see anything. We just hear um, and kind of, we, you know, we get a bit of a, um, a long shot from, from their perspective as they're hiding. And obviously they're, you know, appalled because that they can't do anything. They're just kind of um, waiting it out. Um, and it took they're, me by surprise a bit, actually, that, that Charles uh, did that. But I guess, I suppose at this point, point he's not in control charles himself is not in control of the story so he has to fulfill the role that that the story uh expects of him because he seemed fairly reasonable character throughout the rest of the movie um well somewhat but but if you remember in the beginning he said something along the lines of there are a lot of dead uh drug addicts in these hills which led me to think ooh, maybe he's buried quite a few of these guys himself yeah, maybe, you know maybe it didn't strike me as being a a murderer but then i don't know yeah we weren't quite sure what to make of him he seemed like someone that could be reasoned with because mike yeah. reasoned with him and worked something out so you were wondering if he's someone who you know his bark is worse than his bite or something so it, it was a little bit surprising that he could just coldly kill those guys yeah, I, I thought so as well. It made more sense for him to kill Mike and Billy because they were just on his land. And obviously, you know, the, the drug scene, it made more sense for him to kill them, but not so much yeah, to, yeah, to kill, yeah. you know, our protagonists. But um, we have a nice little kind of, again, quiet scene between the two protagonists as they're waiting for this to happen as well. And it seems like they've, I don't know that their relationship is it gave me hope at that point that Chris wouldn't kill himself if they got out of this, if that makes any sense that, you know, that they had to bonded again and he'd actually got through to him. Yeah. yeah I think yeah, that sobered I, him up a bit. 
Yeah. I think so as well. Which was which is nice. why he said, "Oh, take me back, take me to rehab." He was like, "You got to do it now, though, or I won't go." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I think he that, says he doesn't he doesn't want to die. Take me to rehab, but you got to do it now. Yeah. Yeah, the, you know the fact of seeing his, I think, death and hearing it on you know on these different forms of media is really kind of oh, got that was to horrible him. too. When you hear Michael say, or one of, I think it was Michael saying. I'm a far, and then the gunshot, and yeah, ah, yeah, no, definitely. And then that added scene at the end where you have that bit of hope between them both. Uh, you know that the audience has hope that they're going to be okay and they're going to get out of this. Really, then plays into the ending um, because the house is now on fire. Charles has left, and they walk up to the house, um, and something rises up. Um, we just kind of see the, the dark shadow and Chris actually drops to his knees um, apologising and Mike just stares and asks, can we try it another way? And if this, you know, leads into what we were saying before and this is the audience, are we, you know, I, I read one review that said that at the end it was demanding a sacrifice. Is that the audience wanting them to, to be killed or do you know I, I'm not sure how to read it at all if you can read it in so many different ways I'd be really interested to find yeah. out what you think well I wonder if it is the audience because I, I would argue does the audience really want either of these two characters to die because they're quite likable in my opinion you know um, I just I don't know um from They're, my perspective, I thought it was some sort of, like you said, an entity, like a demon or something. Um, maybe Chris was saying, you know, he he knows this demon has been in control of a lot of this footage, so he's asking, hey, can we try something different? Um, that's sort of how I read it, but I don't know. I'm, I'm very interested to hear uh, you guys' perspective. I think it is the audience. I think that we come to expect that in a horror film, a main character is going to die, someone that we've been invested in. And, you know, we're expecting some, what of a sting in the tail of the story. And there's a death involved often. So for them to, for it to really wrap up as a happy ending, I think in a typical horror movie, we would walk away like, well, that that's a bit of a Hollywood ending for a horror movie. And in that sense, it would be unexpected. So the audience, you know, expectation is getting foiled. And, and so we're then to be rising up to ensure that we get that sacrifice. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I saw it as well. Um, and that the, the, the entity is, is us. Not not like, not as in, it's not me personally, because I was rooting for them. But but um, the, the audience in general, um, you know, as Anthony was saying, kind of the, the expectations put on um, these kind of movies and, and how, how they should end. And that's kind of how I saw it. So it's, it's the, the audience um, as, a, as a group rising. Yeah, it's one, of, it's one of these films, I've, you know, once you see it all in retrospect, I think a lot kind of clicks into place. All the talk about story and... Yeah, I would agree you know, with that. Yeah, I've I've seen it probably three times now, and it's it definitely starts to make more sense the more you see it. Yes, 
And I, that was my strong inclination before I, before finishing it the first time. So then when I went out, uh, there's a prominent review about it on Reddit, very well stated. And that just confirmed everything I was thinking. And I, I don't feel like it's some kind of stretch or, a, you know, you know what I mean? Like some um, weird angle on explaining the movie. I think it, it accurately is stating what's going on. Yeah. Well, either way, it doesn't really matter how you read it. It's it's still interesting, regardless of whether it's some kind of demonic entity or whether it's us as the audience. Um, it's it's still a fascinating story. Oh, definitely. Oh, yes. Completely. And I think that brings us into ratings. Um, Anthony, do you want to go first? I would give this, I don't know, like an 8 out of 10. I think it's a very, very solid film. I mean, for what it is, it's just so well executed. I could go higher than that even. Uh, but for a low-budget film, it's nicely filmed, nicely acted, really well cast. I just think it, I think it works. I just think it was the kind of film that didn't need a big budget. I think the setting and everything was perfectly suited to the budget that they were working with. Matt, what did you think? I really liked it. Um, I would probably also go with, a, with an 8 out of 10 on this one. It's quite a slow-building movie. And it, it kind of feels like there's nothing much happening, but there's a lot happening all at the same time. So it's kind of strange, a strange kind of uh, contrast. Um, but I, I just found myself riveted trying to figure out just what on earth was actually happening. It's got this really um, fantastic, creepy and unnerving atmosphere. The characters are really strange, um, really interesting. And, and certainly on a first watch, any one of them could be the the pro- protagonist or, or uh, you just don't know what's happening um but also the just i think we talked about this a bit earlier but the location and the environment also seems to have its own personality and it it just seems to suck the normal out of everything it's just it's a it's a personality in its own right the location um it seems to be the kind of almost out of time uh the the location a strong recommend and uh eight out of ten for me we're on the same page so far and um, lucad what did you think I really love this film. Uh, I thought it was well done all around, uh, well acted, uh, well directed. As you guys have said already, the, the setting was terrific. And obviously, you can read even more into it as, as we've talked about today. Or, you know, you can sort of, uh, I guess, you can be like me and just take it for sort of face value, uh, which I think is is really cool. It's a really strong point. I like the sort of the lack of music um, because that sort of adds a, a more sense of just this wide open country they're in, I feel like. And I don't know, sometimes I feel like a lot of horror movies use too much music. And I've talked about this before, I think, you know, it's... So I think the lack of music in this film really, really works. And I, I love the fact that it's a deep film where we never see the monster or as we said, maybe we, the audience are the monster, uh, you know, for a low budget film, sometimes they would uh, probably get a guy in a rubber suit to run around and, and they don't do that. We just, the only hint that it may be a monster is at the end when the camera rises up. And I just thought that was really, really clever and really cool. So I'm going to give this one a nine out of 10. Wow. <laughs> And I think I'll also be at a nine. I think it's fantastic. 
Um, it's incredibly creative. It's insanely clever. Um, you know, I, I love, you know, obviously good scripts. And I think this is really up there. The dialogue is fantastic. It's believable. And the characters, because the majority of the film is basically carried by two people. It's just written so well. Um, and this is kind of meta horror at its best. It's insanely um, complex. And there's a lot of convolution in a way in terms of what could be red herrings you can read you know several different things into it I think so many people can come to it and bring their subjective uh, readings and I love that about it um so it's definitely up there for me and like I said Benson and Moorhead are two you know stars um, as far as I'm concerned to watch in future so we're all about the same I reckon yeah that's I a can't good, wait that's to see good... what they do next Definitely. That's a good uh, phrase you use, red herring. It seems like everything in this film is red, a red herring, you know, yeah. because yeah. it's not ultimately about it's, you know, those things. They're sort of in service of that bigger concept. I hadn't even noticed that. Um, I hadn't even thought about the fact that there's no music, but you're absolutely right. There's no there's no music. Yeah, that's a great point, Lucard. There's no yeah. and, and it's not like, you know, sometimes things feel dull and painful when there's no music. This one didn't feel that way. It it lent a sense of realism to it, like you were really in that place. I have a feeling Spring may be the same as well. Can you remember, Becky, if Spring's got music? Um, yes, because I was listening to the soundtrack. Oh, of course you said that, yeah. Yeah, yeah but that yes. works in um, a slightly different way. But again, it's not overpowering at all. Yeah, I, Spring is definitely one I'm going to check out because I, I really enjoyed this film. I haven't seen Spring. Is that also meta, or is it just a straight story? Um, no, it isn't uh, meta, but it's incredibly creative and original. Again, in in its kind of um, in its story and the way that it's executed. Would you agree, Matt? Yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's a bit Lovecraftian as well, which is where the yes. horror elements kind of creep in. Yes, mm. but, the, but the way that it kind of the story that it kind of weaves, I've never really heard anything like that before. No, it was really interesting. Yeah, very you know, the unique. mixture of science and mythology, and yeah, yeah, and and, and again the location, the location, yeah, yeah. fantastic, absolutely stunning location in a remote um, sort of uh, fishing village in in Italy. Um, the you know the, the camera work um, was yeah it was stunning. Moving on, we do actually have a new segment that we hope will be a regular feature. And this is from Talisha Tava, who is a regular UNH Facebook group contributor. And Talisha will be tackling books that tie into upcoming episode topics as our resident horror librarian. So this is a nice um, kind of complimentary piece to Anthony's TV terror segments. And this week, Talisha turns to Stephen King's The Shining. So uh, take it away, Talisha. Thanks to the United Nations of Horror Crowd for having me aboard. Uh, I am Talisha Tarver. I'm your horror librarian, and I'm here to give a book tie-in to today's movie, Resolution. Um, First, I'm going to give a few thoughts on Resolution, and this will be a little spoilery, so feel free to skip ahead a bit if you want to. But this movie actually reminded me of Oculus in that the reality kept switching, so to speak. You, You have Michael and Chris watching their own demise on the laptop and later listening to it again while sitting in the truck. 
And also you see Michael trying to get Chris escape with him. Um, you know, he feels they can write their own ending to their story in spite of the one laid out for them by the house or the spirits of the land or, or whatever it is. Um, but Chris knows better. Um, he's come to the cabin to die and believes that even if his childhood had been better and he maybe have turned into a better person, he would still have become an addict. Uh, he feels that it's in his genes. That's that's just who he is. So he was meant to be there. And so he's meant to never be able to escape. Um, I thought that was an interesting message. Uh, you know, we see Michael is someone who firmly believes that one can change their own destiny. So you have these two characters representing these different schools of thought at the mercy of forces beyond their control. Uh, that's a theme that I kind of had to let to sink in after I watched it. Uh, during the actual movie, I kept getting a little impatient because the creepy stuff is very much in the periphery and the focus is on the two leads. Uh, but I sort of wound up liking this movie better after I had watched it. And I have to admit, it was uh, also kind of a humbling experience uh, because I had just raved and defended uh, The Witch for being a horror movie. And after so many people complained that it wasn't. So now it was my turn to see what that felt like. Uh, but moving on to the book that I chose to go along with the theme of this film, and that's Stephen King's The Shining. And yeah, it's been done to death, but I'm going to focus only on the book and, and not mention the two films or, you know, rather the the major motion picture and then the made-for-TV version later on in the 90s. Uh, so if you want a good comparison between the book and the film, um, I suggest that you check out episode 33 of the Faculty of Horror podcast. They do a real good job of comparing and contrasting uh, you know, the characters and stories between the book and the film, so uh, definitely get that, give that a listen. Uh, but as it pertains to the movie Resolution, um, you know, of course, on the surface, it, it's also about a guy battling an addiction and he's stuck in an abandoned house and on Indian land, no less. But for The Shining, uh, Jack is the one suffering the addiction and trying to overcome his demons and write his own story. And his son, Danny, who is the one more in tune with the forces beyond their control uh, that threaten to destroy the whole family. So for Jack, you know, he's fighting his own self-hatred and his resentment of his family. Trin tries to continually assert himself as a husband and father who's fully capable of taking care of his family, uh, much unlike his own uh, drunken and negligent father. And there's this scene when he uh, uses one of those insecticide poison bombs uh, to destroy a wasp nest, and, and, let, and he lets Danny keep it as a souvenir, thinking that all the wasps have been killed. But unfortunately, they don't appear to be dead, and they start stinging Danny, and Jack now looks like a negligent and incompetent father. Uh, so he's so desperate to take back control that he takes pictures of the stings on Danny's arms and keeps asserting how he's going to sue the manufacturer and so on and so forth. And, you know, throughout the uh, book, you know, of course, the boiler room also provides this really heavy symbolism uh, because Jack is, of course, in charge with uh, keeping the pressure in check so that it doesn't explode. It's an obvious metaphor for his own pressure building up under the evil influences of the Overlook. Uh, but in the end, of course, Jack can't escape uh, his genes or save himself and can't escape his destiny. But he is able to finally assert enough control to give Janie the chance that Jack's father never gave him to escape the family curse. Uh, if you haven't read the book, um, I do recommend it, um, even if you have seen the film adaptation. Uh, like Resolution, the supernatural stuff is mostly in the periphery, with the odd interjection here and there, making the reader aware of its presence. And of course, it builds up to a climactic confrontation with the evil forces in the hotel. Uh, but there's plenty of evidence why King Reigns is a horror novelist, uh, you know, horror novel extraordinaire, of course. Uh, plenty of creepy scenes. Um, I remember reading it in my bedroom one night and getting to a part where Danny gets trapped in a playground tunnel. And I don't think I stopped clinching until the end of that scene. Um, so definitely check it out. And I'll now turn it over to the United Nations of Horror Crew. Thanks, guys.
So thanks to Talisha for her first segment as a horror librarian. And I thought that was really informative. I really liked her readings of um, Resolution as well. And I thought her comparison to Oculus was great. I hadn't picked up on that because she says that both films um, deal with reality shifts and um, a character who's trying to save another person. And I thought it was a really great comparison. Yeah, I I agree. I haven't seen uh, Oculus. Do you guys recommend Oculus? I do. Yes. I really loved Oculus. Yes. Yeah, I, um, I had heard all kinds of like mixed reviews on it, and so I yeah, it, it seems to be a love it or hated film, but I really really enjoyed it. It's kind of like for me, Chernobyl Diaries, which has an amazing premise and starts off quite strongly, but just has a bit of a letdown ending. Yeah, I, you know, I was fine with Chernobyl Diaries. I, uh, I I enjoyed it, and I it was one of those ones where the I, the ending didn't sort of uh, you know deflate the whole thing for me but yeah i'll check that out yeah yeah definitely and, and i mean the shining i've never read the book um but i i love the movie it's kind of crazy that i haven't read the book really and kind of sad but uh, but this has sort of uh made me want to to pick up the book yeah and i mean you you guys talk about uh stephen king a lot you know mark has the um the Stephen King series that he does over at the good, the bad and the odd.com with Anthony. You know, and, and yes, with Anthony. <laughs> and so, I mean, another great podcast you should all check out. Stephen King, always uh, a really talented writer and uh, really enjoyed hearing Talisha and uh, very, as we talked about off air, very well-spoken and lots of uh, great thoughts. Yeah. And we love her accent. <laughs> yes. Her accent is awesome. Absolutely. It's nice to hear a fellow Southerner's accent. So, <laughs> And it's nice so to have another from... woman as well contributing. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> um, so yeah. I'm like... I love how she uses y'all, which yes. <laughs> I, I always try. Like y'all. when I'm talking with other people, I typically don't say y'all because you know it's such a southern thing. I try to say you guys. <laughs> which, is there any specific thing you guys say in over in the UK? Like I know you guys don't have y'all, but <laughs> well, we do. We do. We do use that. You but do use y'all, really? Well, well, yeah. Well, well, yeah, because we got it from you guys. So, but we say you guys. <laughs> hey, you guys. You guys. Guyses. <laughs> Up north, it's it's you guys, and down south, it's y'all. I don't know. The U.S. is a weird place. <laughs> the U.S. is weird, and where I live in the Pittsburgh region, they use the phrase "yuns." Oh yes, I've heard that one before. My yeah. great grandparents used "yuns." <laughs> yeah, that's that was an odd one. For me when i first heard that old school yeah <laughs> yeah yeah we are a very diverse group here on the united nations of horror no doubt about that it's <laughs> it's pretty awesome <laughs> and um so i really hope that talisha will be um a regular contributor to um this kind of you know book segment um and i look forward to seeing what she kind of produces in future but i think she will be on next week with us to talk about spider baby which would be fantastic yeah, it's going to be awesome. We've also had um, quite a bit of feedback, as usual, um, not only about Resolution, but also about our Candyman episode from a couple of weeks ago. And I apologize for my sound quality in that um, episode, which is terrible, but hopefully it's improving. So, Okay, so this is um, from Kieran Fisher uh, through the Facebook group, I believe. Uh, and this is uh, some of his feedback on Resolution. Um, this movie is fantastic and wholly original. Benson and Moorhead are 
two of the most exciting filmmakers on the planet right now. That's two masterpieces under their belt already. I think we all agree. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Yep. Wallaby Jones writes, I think this was a brilliant film, but I still wanted to slap the director at the end, similar to my feelings about the original Funny Games, albeit for different reasons. Uh, I have not seen Funny Games, but... You know, when I first watched the film, I was just like, oh, what the heck? So I can understand that feeling. But at the same time, I was like, okay, that was brilliant. So, <laughs> But yeah, I think a lot of people probably do have that feeling of, of wanting to just like slap the director for not actually showing the entity, you know? Yeah, I, I can see why people would be. I mean, personally, I, I love what they did, but I can see why people might be angry about that. <laughs> Yes, definitely. And then so Anthony, next we've got you have oh, Anthony's your... feedback <laughs> by Anthony. <laughs> no, I have Are you no still with us, Anthony? This, but, uh, yeah, I'm here. Oh, of course. Of course, you haven't I got have... it, have you? No, I don't have it. Uh, what did I say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so one of us will have to read it then. <laughs> Anthony Rotolo says, I watched for the first time um, the film last night. I figured out what was going on also. At first, it seemed like a puzzle film. And although the concept is great, I might have found it more satisfying if the puzzle pieces went together in the conventional sense. So as a result of what I said, Resolution feels like a novelty film in the end, much as I liked it. Sounds Do you like agree with that, Anthony? News have changed <laughs> since you wrote that. A little bit. You know, it's one of those films where you um, it stays with you and you think about it. And I think my appreciation has grown with it. I, I think I s- still would say that it's a little bit of a novelty film in the sense that maybe for me, I don't know how much repeat value it will have for me. I think I could watch it again, but um, I guess the way some people will complain about an M night Shyamalan film that they can't sit through it again after they've figured it out. um, I think that's kind of what I was saying. But um, the, the more I've thought about the construction and you know, figuring out how to pull off that effect and all the parceling out of clues and everything, I, I'm very impressed with what they've achieved with this. That's really interesting yeah, this, to, to see how it's changed for you. It is. You know, and this is a film, strangely for me, like I don't usually go back and watch films that quickly, but like the next day I think I actually – went back and watched Resolution again. It's just, that's how much I liked it. Well, you know, I liked it so much, I'm motivated now to check out Spring. I think There you go. Yeah, same here. That's great. I'm, I'm really happy, because I think you will I think you will actually prefer Spring to this. I honestly do. Wow, that's really high praise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, really, it's really a more really accessible cool. film, Spring, for sure. I was chatting with someone about it briefly on um, Facebook I think the other day, and um, I, I think that Spring is the sort of film that you could sit down and watch with someone who isn't necessarily a fan of horror. It has horrific moments in it, but I think the um, uh, the, the central relationship between the t- two main characters is 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 what really drives that film. Uh, much like Resolution, but um, I, I think the f- I, I think people would just find Spring a lot more accessible um, and, and, and yeah, and possibly actually in, in quite enjoy it, even if they're not typical horror fans so that was my thoughts the other film that pops into my mind uh and i don't know if we have discussed this maybe on the wicker man episode i'm not sure but there's a film called the shrine have you seen that one yes i love it yes i think i have yeah yeah and 
tell me if you agree with me. It reminds me a little bit of a more, in terms of it being more conventional in terms of storytelling, resolution reminds me of that a little bit in the sense of you're in this kind of strange locale and there's a lot of story questions, a lot of weird things that go on. And then eventually it kind of comes together and you figure out what's happening. But uh, that, that would be a, that, that reminds me of resolution for those reasons. Yeah, I can definitely see that comparison. Yeah, I think so. And they're both kind of, I would say, folk horror. Yeah, certainly. Although I don't think Shrine was anywhere near as good. Or at least certainly not some, uh, of, the di- yeah. some of the dialogue and acting in the Shrine was I, pretty, I would s- pretty dodgy. I would say the Shrine is certainly not as deep of a film and, and the characters are not nearly as uh, flushed out as, you know, as this film. It's not. I, you know, I thought it was a little gem of, a, of an indie film. Yeah, I, I I like it. Was it. Definitely, yeah. it was enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but I can yeah. I don't think it had the same degree of construction, like the how elaborate you know, the the planning you know had to be for resolution. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, we've also had uh, some feedback on Candyman um, episode twenty from Dan Pollitt. Um, does Matt? Do you want to tackle this? Dan says, "Hey, you guys." Is, is Dan English or is he American? I think he's English, but I always take that to yep. be, I read it in, um, what's it called? The Goonies. Yeah, I always uh, do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he says his hometown is in Liverpool, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, oh, yeah. I'm not even going to try and attempt a, uh, a Liverpudlian <laughs> accent. Um, <laughs> anyway, he goes on to say... Um, Always felt Candyman is the rare example of a Clive Barker story adapted well to screen, along with Hellraiser and dot, 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 nothing else. Well, maybe Nightbreed, depending on how you feel on the day. It's based on his (laughs) short story. I actually like Nightbreed, but yeah. Uh, Anyway, uh, it's based on his short story, The Forbidden, from uh, Books of Blood, Volume 1. I think uh, it does a really good job of transposing the story to America. While it's never stated in the short story, I've always imagined it to take place in Barker and my own hometown of Liverpool. There we go. Yeah. Uh, having grown up there, it's <laughs> having grown up there, it's not hard to imagine how Barker came up with the rundown tower block setting for the story and the general superstition. Tony Todd really uh, uh, commits to the role with all those live bees in his mouth and on his person. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's this that really sells the story and the threat. His menace from just a few words show why he's become a horror icon based on this role. This isn't to downplay Virginia Madsen, who really sells initially um, fear for her life and eventually fear of losing her sanity. Always felt the loss of sanity is rarely portrayed well on film, and, and Madsen nails it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, for a bad, I'm not sure I agree. With this next comment but anyway for a bad example see sam neill in the mouth of madness love that film not a fan of the performance um although actually i i, I think i think i know what he's getting at yeah sam neill does um yeah he maybe over exit a bit actually um as for the sequels why peace out dan yeah just from what i've seen i mean Candyman 2 uh as we discussed on that show not real good and i've 
I heard three is not that good either. But hey, Candyman one is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And has anyone else seen In the Mouth of Madness? I've seen it one time. I was not as impressed with it as some people are. I see it as second tier John Carpenter. Like I wouldn't hold it up with, I don't think it is on the level of the thing or Halloween, uh, uh, but it was good. I, it was I, interesting. I, it's, it's more on yeah. the level for me, like the second string Carpenter is like Prince of Darkness. And, and uh, right now there are people tearing their clothes, crying blasphemy. But um, yeah, I just, <laughs> I kind of look at Carpenter as like these tiers of, you know, quality of, of his films. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, obviously, you know, you have something like uh, vampires compared to Halloween, you know, definitely different quality there. <laughs> yeah, and then no uh, Village of the Damned is probably like in the basement. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, <for> me. <laughs> not a good film. Sorry, Becky, you were, you were going to say something. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say thanks for making me read out Candyman nearly five times. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. I nearly wrote it five times. <laughs> Does that work? Yeah, you don't do you want think? to do that. <laughs> no. Don't look in the mirror. You'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to, to Dan and everyone else for the feedback there. And um, yeah. we have, as usual, um, another podcast recommendation this week. And I know that Lucard is also a big fan of this one, um, which is The Faculty of Horror. Yes. Great show. Absolutely love it. And it basically tackles all things horror with a slash of analysis and research. Um, and it's hosted by horror journalists and occasional academics, Andrea Subasati and Alexandra West. And they provide brain plumping discussions on all things that go bump in the night. And they podcast from Toronto. And it's a wonderfully in-depth exploration of specific topics. They usually look at two films per episode. And for me personally, I know I'm always banging on about it, but it's really refreshing to have um, a female voice in the horror podcasting world. So, um, you know, the hosts really know what they're on about. And they write for various magazines such as Diabolique. And they've published their academic work on zombies and found footage. And it's an absolute joy to listen to. It's very uh, well constructed. They do little kind of creative skits. Um, it's structured, it's detailed, um, informative, and it's in my top three podcasts for sure. Um, how about you, Lucard? Yeah, I guess I'd, I've never really made a list, but uh, whenever they have a new episode up, I get pretty excited. I'll say that for sure. Um, and I mean, I just like, it reminds me of Horror Etc. in the way that it's very thought-provoking like they really think deeply about these films before they discuss them and you know i really appreciate that um and you know we try to do that here i, I feel like we succeed pretty good most days so <laughs> <laughs> at least you guys do you know <laughs> no you do Every, i think everybody brings something to the table here and that's what i like about it yeah definitely but it, it's a great show and they recently did Bram Stoker's Dracula, which um, made me really excited. And, and I know you as well, Becky, because uh, we're both fans of that movie yeah. and, and it often gets a lot of hate from horror movie fans. But uh, it's one of my favorites and I thought their commentaries on the film were very accurate. Yes, I really enjoyed that. And I loved the kind of complimentary look at Frankenstein as well. Yeah, yes, definitely. I almost forgot they covered that in the, uh, the same podcast. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, um, they sound so, really good. I'll yeah, have to check that definitely. out. It's not one I've listened I've, to yet. Um, oh, I definitely recommend it. 
it's it's great it's an it's an easy listen um but at the same time you know it's an academic podcast you know at its heart so you know i learn something new every time there's too many it's just yeah (laughs) far too many great podcasts that keep getting recommended i can't keep up i've listened to a couple of their episodes um i thought they were being a little hard on halloween in fact i think a long time ago rebecca and i were talking about this online where I, I was like a little put off by it. But in retrospect, I think they were comparing it to films Black like Christmas. Black Christmas. Yeah. And I think they were just pointing out like, you know, you know, more deeply fleshed characters versus what you get in Halloween. In the final analysis, I'm more willing to accept, you know, Laurie Strode's friends as, as real characters, even though they're kind of superficial in a way. But uh, they they make some good points, and it's an interesting comparison because you've got these two films um, that are kind of the proto slashers, and you know how those characters were developed. So I have to revisit them and, and listen to them more. I, I haven't listened to enough to, you know, when you kind of settle in to a show and you feel like you've gotten to know the hosts. I, I never reached that point, so I, I need to log some more time with them. I've just been yeah, enjoying. Not in a creepy way. Yes. Yep. And as we've <laughs> talked about that show, it, always great. And they're so funny. They are. So. And so they give us a nice a little shout out on their previous episodes. Um, yeah. A couple of times. Much appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. I want to give a shout out to Kyle Chamberlain's Horror and More show. Have you guys listened to Kyle's podcast? No, that, that was on my list to be a podcast recommendation for another week. <laughs> I'm sorry. You can edit this out if you like. <laughs> no, no, by all means. And then um, yeah, I ahead. can say it again. That's not a problem. Um, it's a good show. Uh, Kyle puts a lot of effort into it. There's a, you know, Some of his shows are unbelievably comprehensive. He went through, uh, in one episode, he did anthologies. And he went through so many movies uh, that like by the end of it, I was like, whoa, I have a lot of work to do on anthologies. Um. So, yeah, they, he puts a lot of work into them. He does sort of these, like, extravaganza episodes where, like, he does, like, they pick a theme and they do it from top to bottom. So, yeah, a lot of production value going into that, a lot of research. So uh, it's one to check out. And there's a good chemistry between um, him and his co-host, Maddie. So if you're looking for long-form conversation that's listenable, give that one a try. Very cool. Yeah, I'll have to add that to my ever-growing list of uh, horror movie podcasts, which always causes my my list of movies to increase. (laughs) It's just one big uh, craziness, crazy thing, I should say. I'm never going to get caught up with television. (laughs) (laughs) Neither am I. (laughs) It's a good problem to have. Yeah. First world problems, you know. On that note... um... Next week, we're going to be looking at Spider Baby from 1967 as part of the uh, Children of the Old Dark House series, which, of course, is headed up by Mark. And um, we would love to hear your thoughts on this week's topic, uh, next week's, um, or anything else horror-related. Please do email your messages in MP3 format to unitednationsofhorror at gmail.com or drop us a line at this address. Um, and do make sure to head over to the website for all the latest podcast information articles and reviews from mike lots of nice new ones up there 
Um, and that, yes. yeah, he's a, it's a really cracking Doing piece. a great job. Yeah, it's just... And Mike, we hope you feel better, man. Yeah, I, I really hope yeah. he's, he's yeah. feeling better today. And that is unitednationsofhorror.com. And on top of that, if you haven't already, um, head over to the Facebook group, which is uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash UN of horror. And thanks to um, Lucard, Anthony and Matt for joining me today and to Talisha for her great debut as a member of the team. And until next time, you've been listening to the United Nations of Horror. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Take care, everybody. <laughs> Places I go make me feel tongue-tied. I can see how people look down there on the inside. Here's where the story ends. People I see. He's kind of his eyes scan across the mirror, and then he holds, and then he suddenly holds you, your eyes in, in, in his eyes for a second. He's looking. Oh, did you hear that? Whoa. I heard that. That scared me. <laughs> what was that? Oh, yeah. about I don't know. That's kind of creepy. Yikes! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, okay. do, do you? Do you, um, oh. do you all want to hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Wait, should we? We just should. Uh, what have we got? Should we just like just rotate? So, yeah. I mean, Anthony's actually one of the people, so he can read his out if he wants. He can read his own, <laughs> or one of us could do an impression. Oh, did I? Did I, I, I have comments I on the? I don't even remember. Did I have comments I on just, the camera? You just yeah, posted yeah. it on the the Facebook page, I believe. I don't think oh. anyone is is as well spoken as you are, though, Anthony. Yeah. We'll, we wouldn't do your voice justice. So, <laughs> oh gosh. True, true, true. <laughs> Should we just ro- uh, rotate them then? Yeah. We we can cut all this out, obviously. But um, yeah, yeah, no problem. Who's going to start? It in as an extra. Yeah, you can leave a bit of that in if you want, because that was quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can see why people would be. I mean, personally, I, I love what they did, but I can see why people might be angry about that. <laughs> yes, definitely. Like the entity. Yeah, well, the film, The Entity. No, 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 sorry.
Oh, sorry, you cut out. And they might be angry like the, sorry, they might be angry like the entity in the film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, it's, really, it's a more accessible film, Spring, for sure. Um, yeah. You know, I was, I was actually chatting about it. I'm sorry, sorry Matt. I, why don't you take that from the top? I apologize. I interrupted you. It's all right. Oh, am I going? Yeah, why don't you t- try that again? We'll just edit out my, my rude interruption. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, hang on. What was I saying? Just a second. Uh, we, okay, where we I left off, right. we were talking about watching Spring is where we left off. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay, here we go. Yeah, no, I think um, Spring's actually a more accessible film um, than Resolution. Uh, I was chatting but no, I'm thankful. Well, thanks. Oh, sorry. Go I was going to say the same thing. Thanks for the feedback. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> thanks to, to Dan and everyone else for the feedback there. And they provide blame. Uh, <laughs> <start again. laughs> blame prompting. <laughs> so. Blooper reel. <laughs> You get the bloopers if you get a Patreon with us. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be that mean. <laughs> Shit! Fuck, Chris! What? Shit! What? What's happening? What? Fuck.